You can have a joy and a peace in your heart and you don't have to go around grieving forever and forever if you'll get what God's Word says down in your heart and make it to become sin in your life to disobey what the Word says. When I first went to the church in Englewood, Colorado in 1957, I was supposed to call on the widows and pray with them. And I went into this one lady's house. She had been a widow for three and a half years. Still had all of her shades pulled down. Still had all the pictures of her husband sitting around the house. His name was Joe. And she would sit on the couch with box after box of Kleenex and just weep and weep and weep and weep and go on and on. Oh, my precious Joe, we never argued, we never fought, never had a hard word. I thought, give me a break. You know, let me tell you something. If you never argue and if you never fuss, one of you ain't necessary. One of you just isn't necessary if you never have a disagreement. But I sat down with her and finally I just reached over on the table and picked up an orange and I, I held her an apple. I picked up and I said, look at this. I said, have you ever seen half of one of these on a tree? And she said, no. I said, why? Said, I don't know. I said, because God doesn't make a mistake. I said, you've been sitting for three and a half years here weeping in as much as saying that God made a mistake. Oh, I miss him so much. I said, where is he? Well, he's with the Lord. I said, then why are you grieving over that if he's with the Lord? I said, you have wasted three and a half years when you could have been productive for the kingdom of God. Well, I can't do anything without Joe. I said, well, if you can't do anything without Joe, then you've made him your God instead of Jesus Christ. Who is your God? I got kind of hard with it. But let me tell you, the end result was she got up off of that couch and the next time I came over to the house, her shades were up and she had found in the newspaper lists of babies that were born in that community in Denver. And she started writing letters, handwritten letters with poetry on each one of them and put two or three tracks in an envelope and was sending them to the hospital to these mothers with brand new babies just as soon as the report came out in the paper. And she was up to a hundred and some a day. And she was starting to get letters back, and she was so thrilled. Like, I mean, she was, Pastor Joe, come here, I want to show you. Look at what this mother wrote. This mother said she appreciated the tracks, and she's found the Lord, and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, what a difference. Now, let me ask you something. Did God change? Did her circumstances change? No, she just came to the understanding that we're to rejoice in the Lord and not grieve as those who have no hope. Yes, it hurts when you lose a loved one. But you have to quit thinking about what you've lost and what they've gained and say, now, why has God left me here? Still chuckle when I think about that woman that put on her husband's tombstone, may he rest in peace till we meet again. We have to begin to declare what the Word says. The Word of God says all things work together for good. All things work together for good to them that love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. I don't understand why that happened, but it doesn't make any difference, Lord. It's for my good. It's for my good. Thank you, Lord. It's for my good. I don't understand it, but it's for my good because your word says so. Yeah, but that's awful hard to say. It's no harder to say than to say, dear God, you're not fair to me. Go on and on. Like, no, no, no. I say what the word says. As for God, his way is what? Perfect. Do I enjoy the fact that these things happen? No. But I rejoice in the fact that God doesn't make a mistake and I'm going to get in line and find out why it happened that way. If I don't find out now, I will then. But I'm not going to accuse God foolishly. That has to become a standard in our life so when we have disappointments come to us, oh, I love that job, oh, I wish I, I lost that job, now what am I going to do? You're going to thank God that you lost the job and say, Lord, what's that better thing you've got for me now? And what principles did I miss? What principles did I violate so that I'll never do it again, so I'll be able to do better the next time? They say, why is that true? Because the Word of God says, as the Father pitieth his children, so the Lord pities them the fearing. If you, you love the Lord and you're trying to do the best you can, how many of you know that most dads, if they see a child just learning how to walk and gets up and takes three steps and falls down, doesn't walk over and say, you dummy, don't you ever try that again, I'll slap you across. They don't say that. They walk over. Did you see that kid in my? Watch this here. Here, take my finger. Come on, I'll help you. Come on, just take. Look there. He took four steps this time. See? What are we doing? As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them the fear. And if you and I say, Lord, I don't understand. If I violated the principles, please show me from the Word of God. But I'm going to try my best to walk before you. What's he going to do? Say, get down. He's going to say, Come on, son. I'll, come on, daughter. I'll show you how to do it. Man. It's a good thing to draw near to God. The Scripture says. We've been talking about drawing near to God, and in Hebrews 10, 22, we said it was with the three things, with a true heart, 
transparent heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. If you and I are going to draw near to God, we're going to have to be absolutely honest with God. Just say, God, here it is, and just lay it all out. Might as well do it anyway because he knows what's going on inside of us anyway. And uh, secondly, uh, we're to do it in full assurance of faith. If we've been transparent with God and we've confessed our sins to him, repented of our sins, we can come with boldness before the throne of God in the name of Jesus through the power of his blood and know we have audience with God. Third thing was, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. In the Old Testament, they went away just saying, well, God told me to do it, so I'm going to have to, I did it, so now I'm just going to have to believe that it's taken care of. But in the New Testament, his Holy Spirit witnesses to us that not only that our sins have been covered, but have been taken away. Where our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience. Paul the Apostle says, I have a clear conscience toward God and man. So in Proverbs 25, verse 28, we were talking about he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. And we talked about the fact that that talking about not having control over, not having a bridle on, not having restraint on your own emotions and passions, on your own will, we open ourselves to demonic activity. And we gave a couple of examples the last time I spoke on this subject. And we talked about, first of all, in the area of happiness. What makes you happy? If it takes circumstances to make us happy, our walls are down and we are open to demonic activity. If we're not going to be happy unless God does thus and such or the other thing, and if this works out, then we're going to then we'll be choose to be happy, then we're in trouble. Because first of all, that opens the door for Satan to come in, and as the book of Ephesians says, don't give a landing strip, don't give open ground to the devil, but he can come in with fear and worry, and anxiety, and dread, and nervousness. If you see a Christian that's manifesting these attributes in their life, chances are they are living at the level where circumstances have to make them happy. I spoke on this before. I said that the secret for you and me to learn as a believer is not to be happy by, because of circumstances, but to rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. We rejoice in the fact that our names are written in heaven. Remember the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, we were so thrilled. I mean, we cast out demons and people got healed. And he said, don't get excited over that, but rather be excited that your names are written down in the Lamb's book of life, in the book of heaven. And if you and I base our happiness on any other circumstances other than the fact that we've been redeemed by the blood, that we have been rescued from hell, eternal hell, and have been placed in Christ and have eternal life dwelling in us, then Satan's got an open door to come in and take things away from us and take away our joy and our happiness and our peace. Casting all your care on him because he cares for you. That's one of the first areas. Now, he said if you can't control your passions and your emotions... That you're like a city, its walls are broken down. You're open to the attack of the enemy. He can come in from any way he wants to. The second thing we talked about was in the area of sorrow and grief. Sorrow and grief usually comes from unfulfilled expectations. Well, I just thought this was, I thought that was going to happen. I just thought it was going to work out this way, and it didn't. And oh, I'm just so disappointed, and it really makes me sad. Someone dies that we dearly loved, or we lost a job, a position, or we lost our finances. I talked to a man not too long ago on the phone, and he had just lost close to a half million dollars. And he said, but bless God, that's not where my happiness dwells. My happiness dwells in my relationship to Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of us, if we lost proportionately that much money tomorrow, would be able to say, the Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, Jesus said that we're not to bank our happiness upon the things that we possess. If you have food to eat, you have a roof over your head, you have clothes to put on, he said, that's all you need. Your Heavenly Father knows everything that you need. But whenever we get expectations above and beyond that, and Bill Gothard talks about giving all your expectations to the Lord, that's where a lot of wives and husbands get into trouble. Well, I expected her to be different. I expected her to be better. Well, I thought for sure I took him for worse. I knew, he, I mean, for better, I knew he couldn't be any worse, you know, but he got worse. You see, we get all these expectations lined up and the Word says give all of our expectations to God and then no matter what happens, we can rejoice in Him. When sorrow and grief and heartache comes to us, 
and we fail to say what God's Word says, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. As for God, His way is absolutely perfect. When we don't allow those things to rule and reign in our life, our walls are down, and we're like a city with no defenses whatsoever. And I'll just tell you a few things that we open ourselves to when we don't have control of these areas. Bitterness, resentment, many times bitterness and resentment toward God Himself. And we have to repent and ask God for forgiveness and say, Lord, I want to acknowledge that you do all things well. And I ask for your forgiveness for doubting you and allowing myself to become bitter toward you. I can't tell you how many people down through the years have said, I'll never go to church again. God killed my mother. or God took my father out of this life. And God took my sister. All these little babies that are dying in such and such a land. That can't be God. How foolish that is. But see, their the walls are down. Because of ignorance of the Word, not knowing what the truth of the Word is, they open themselves up to all the attacks and the lies of the enemy. I know of, of many young people who have, had, uh, who have been angry at their parents. They had certain expectations they didn't get. And today they're living with hatred of women or the, they're angry at their dad. They've got hatred of, of men or hatred of their father. They open the doors because their walls are down and they don't understand that all things work together for good and we have to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not lean unto our own understanding and always acknowledge Him and know that He'll direct our path. We open ourselves up in these cases when things happen that we don't expect and we have unfulfilled expectations. We open ourselves to unforgiveness, many times to violence, to temper, to anger. You ever have these things happening in your home? Temper and anger, and retaliation, strife, contention, bickering, arguing, quarreling, fighting, or even withdrawal. I've known of cases when things didn't go the way we thought they should and people have just pulled away from the church, have pulled away from God, pulled out of fellowship with God's people, just walked away from it all. You know why? The walls fell down and they didn't fill their hearts with what the Word of God had to say and God made a mistake. He didn't do what I expected Him to do. Remember, God is not our servant. We're His. He's on the throne. He never makes a mistake. But when we don't believe that, when we don't get that down in our spirit, we go into pouting. We go into daydreaming and fantasy and pretension and unreality. Sometimes we get into depression. I'm just describing to you some of the end results of where the enemy comes in and begins to take control of a certain area of our life. Now, I'm not saying the person is demon-possessed. I like the term that uh, Frank and Ida Hammond used to speak of, demonized. We open ourselves to the attack of the enemy where demonic forces can come in and control us in certain areas of our life. And I've seen people who have had great expectations, and I remember some years ago I had a man here in the church that thought this wonderful financial thing was going to work out for him, and I, I sat down and I said, I love you dearly, and I'm just, just praying and asking God that it will be fulfilled, but let me just lay a barrier reef here in case the storm comes and doesn't work out the way it should, because I have run myself into some shoals before. If it doesn't work out, don't set your heart on that. Oh, but by next year I'm going to have $190,000 coming. I said, I hope you do. I hope you have $390,000. But now let me say it again. If it doesn't happen, don't blame God. You're setting up expectations here, and if it doesn't happen, I don't want you to open yourself up to the attack of the enemy. That man went into despair and depression and despondency and discouragement and hopelessness and God doesn't care and God just on and on and on. And I thought to myself, why wouldn't he listen to what I was trying to tell him? Don't set expectations up. Give them all to God. God, if this happens, bless the Lord. If it doesn't happen, bless the Lord. Then that's not what was supposed to happen in my life. You ever have anybody that is a Christian say to you, I don't know why everybody else gets all these things and it just seems like every time I try to do something, it all falls in my face. Because God probably knows you could never take it if you got it. If you can't take it when it can't stand it when it's taken away from you, you probably couldn't take it if it was given to you. I've known of people where when blessings have come to them, it's destroyed them spiritually. Then covetousness and arrogance and pride and vanity and all these things enter in. You see, this is why the Word of God says we don't dare be double-minded. Don't think that God's going to give anything to those that are double-minded. He says you have to be able to control your passions, or if you don't, you're like a city that is broken down and without walls. The enemy can come right in and take over in your life. 
But the Word of God says it's good for us to draw near to God. Drawing near to God means we come to the place of total dependence upon His provision for our lives. And whatever He gives us, whatever He has for our lives, we're going to thank Him for it. The Lord gives. Now, you know, Job's wife came to Job after all of his children were killed, after all of his animals were destroyed, after all of his crops were gone, and Job was sitting there with boils from the top of the head to the bottom of his feet. But what did she say? Let's raise our hands and praise God. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? I mean, after all, look what's happened. Job says, what are you talking about? You mean when God blessed me like he blessed me with all these things, then I'm supposed to bless him, and then when he takes him away from me, I'm supposed to curse him? He says, even though he slays me, yet will I trust him. Job learned the truth there, didn't he? Now he said it, and you know something? He wasn't even instantly healed then. You'd have thought, boy, God should have said, bless God, he's learned his lesson here. You're healed now. Job still went through it for a long time. He had his three wonderful comforters come around and you know, bless him and encourage him all along. But Job learned something there. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. It's the Lord that giveth us the power to, make, to get well. You know what the Word of God says? Now, if God wants you and me to have well, He's the one that's going to give us the power to get it. And if he's the one that's going to give us the power, he's also the one that has the power to withhold it. Now, with the minute somebody hears that, there are many Christians that say, why would God withhold wealth from me? Oh, he may have a lot of good reasons for withholding wealth from us. How many of you know that many people right now are spending money they can't afford to spend thinking that they're going to hit that one hot jackpot? 96,000, 960,000, no, $96 dollars $96 now. Oh, man. I mean, I have, I've heard of guys that, I mean, they can't even rub two nickels together. They're going and borrowing money. They're going to the bank and taking out all their savings. And they're buying all these tickets this month. They're going to get it. You know, that's dumb gone to seed. The more tickets are sold, the fewer your chances of winning. One in 14 million. Think about it. One chance in 14 million. But people are taking money they can't afford to spend. Money for food and rent and car payments and everything else. To stick it into that thing. I want to tell you something. If God wants to bless you and me as a believer, we don't have to stick it into a lottery. We can say, Lord, you said we're going to do it by the sweat of our brow. I'll do whatever you show me to do. I'll work labor. You said it's the steady plotter that's going to prosper, not the one that's got a get-rich-quick scheme going. And I'll tell you, I'd rather have God's finances because he says that when we get into a get-rich-quick scheme that it can... It'll disappear. Just like water running between your fingers, it'll disappear overnight. A curse comes with it. Isn't that interesting? But you see, there's some people, if they were to get it, it would ruin them. But when things don't happen, then depression and despair and despondency and discouragement, hopelessness and unfairness begin to say, God's not fair. And also impatience. We open the door to impatience. Of course, you heard of the man says, God, I want patience and I want it now. Right now. I just want to say, make sure that your walls aren't broken down. That you're not open to the attack of the enemy. We have to say it doesn't make any difference what happens. How many of you know Job didn't expect to have his children killed? He didn't expect to have his crops destroyed. didn't expect to have all the animals destroyed. He didn't expect to have any physical problems. But when they came, he already had an armor set up. Yea, do it, slay me, yet will I trust him. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Naked came I into this world, naked I'm going to go out of this world. If we can just keep that in our mind and remember it, then we don't open ourselves to the attack of the enemy. And when these unexpected things come, we say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. And we go on and on, just praising the Lord in the midst of our afflictions in the midst of our trials and testing. How many of you know Jesus didn't promise us all an easy road, but he said whatever road we walk, he'll walk with us. And in that day, he will settle the account. I tell you, I would certainly hate to be the person that stands before God and says, God, when I was on earth, why didn't you give me that new Cadillac that I wanted? Why didn't you give me that new Rolls Royce that I wanted? And then begin to see the nail prints in the hands of our Lord Jesus and in his feet and in his side. And he said, I gave you the most important thing you could ever have, and that was eternal life and assurance of salvation. What more could you possibly want? 
I'll tell you something. I would rather know what I know and have just what I have, if not even if I didn't even have what I have, than be one of the richest sheiks over there in Kuwait or Saudi Arabia or any of those places if they don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. What was it Solomon said when he became a multi-billionaire? He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Here I have accumulated all this money and I'm going to die and some fool is going to come along and spend it. That isn't the answer to life. The next thing we talk, I want to talk to you about in the area of being double-minded is in the area of compassion and mercy. Some people think that God's up there dispensing forgiveness tickets to everybody, but the Word of God says if we repent. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. And many, many times we find within many of our evangelical, charismatic, sloppy agape churches today that God just automatically writes it all off and it's all forgiven. No matter, you can go right on doing what you're doing, but just write them off and forgive them. I want to tell you something. That creates sin within the body. That brings a broken down standard within the church. And it opens the door within the church to immorality and unrighteousness and impurity and lust. I, I really feel for many pastors today, they don't know where to stand. They'll write an article. In fact, I was reading one this last week of how the church needs to be established more in doctrine. And I say, amen. They really do need to be established more in doctrine. And then they will talk about forgiveness, that forgiveness is absolutely just, God's just pouring it out by the bucket load. But when you start talking about repentance, many of them pull back and say, well, that's by works. But the Word of God doesn't say that repentance is works. Repentance is the response to God's invitation for forgiveness. Or repent and say, God, I'm sorry, and I claim cleansing through the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. But for us to wallow around with bags of sin in our, on our backs and say, I'm forgiven through the blood of Jesus and carry, them, carry these bags of sin right through the blood and go right on living in that sin, I don't find in the Word of God where there's forgiveness for that. And when we allow that to happen within our churches, it opens the door to our young people to be exposed to those same spirits that are in those people who have never repented of their sin. Self-justification, self-righteousness, all these things, they, the door is open for these things. I could also bring that over into the area of the family. When I was a child, my dad was not a Christian, but my dad knew what was right and what was wrong, and if I did something wrong, he knew what was supposed to be done when you did something wrong. And my dad used to say that if I didn't get at least one spanking a day, I was sick. He knew I should probably go to bed if I didn't get at least one spanking a day. He had, a, he had two razor straps in the house. Any of you know what these old double razor straps are like? They're about this wide and about that thick. But he had, each of them had two straps, one on top of the other. He would take one to sharpen or to smooth out the blade, and then the other one was a little bit smoother yet, I guess, to really put an edge on the blade. But those babies would really smart when they'd wrap those around the, the uh, hinder side of you. And I can still remember him telling me, I'm doing this to you because I love you too much. I love you. And I'm not going to let you get away with this stuff. And I used to think, well, if you love me so much, you wouldn't hit me. See, wrong thinking. But there are many people within the church today, I have literally heard people say, God showed me that I'm not supposed to punish my children anymore. I'm just supposed to talk with them, and if they've done something wrong, it's my fault. I thought, say what? <laughs> Give me a break. It's my fault? Well, I'll try to help them out by helping myself out. and let You know, the Word of God says that God Himself, if He has a child, He chastens that child. How? Be times. What does that mean? Not just once. It's almost as though if you don't get a spanking every day, you must be sick. He sees to it that He keeps us in line, not because He hates us, but because He loves us. And when we do not take that standard that God has given us in His Word, and we begin to think that mercy means we don't correct wickedness and disobedience, we open our children up to rebellion, to resentment, to bitterness, to anger, to violence, the, their walls are knocked down. We establish principles. We establish 
uh, procedures in their life that we say that's a wall and that wall will never move. That's a rule in this house. According to God's word, we should not allow this in your life. We'll not allow it because we want you to have a right relationship with Jesus Christ in the days ahead. And I am the spiritual authority in this home. God has given me this responsibility and I don't want him to chasten me. I don't want him to have to spank me. So I'm going to take care of this situation in your life because I love you so much. And there are many people who have a distorted view of what love really is. Love means that we are concerned enough that we refuse to allow them to do that which is wrong. And then, of course, the word love, the world. You know there's three Greek words for the word love. and the One is eros, from the which we get the word erotic. It's talking about fleshly relationships talking about you love me and I'll love you and I'll get out of it everything I can get. And if you happen to get something out of it, that's fine too. But if not, that's tough. It's a very selfish type of relationship. The other word is phileo, from which we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. And that's a case of reciprocal love. You love me and I'll love you. Some people tell me that Philadelphia doesn't have too much of that in it anymore, but uh, that's why they wanted to name it as a friendly city. But then we want to talk about agape love, and the world doesn't understand that. Recently I was talking to a man, in his, he was 70 years of age, and he was trying to explain to me that physical relationships between two consenting adults, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if the young people are mature enough, there's nothing wrong with that. And as I was reading some Christian magazines this past week as I was lying around, trying to get caught up on some of my... Um, periodical reading, uh, I was just amazed at the latest statistics that come out, not just of non-church groups, but of Christian organizations, Christian groups. Uh, a survey was taken of 5,500 college students, and almost three out of four of them are saying today that before they graduate from college, they're having physical relationships with each other, and they don't see anything wrong with it as long as you do it in a safe manner. How many of you know that, that the premise is false in itself? There is no safe manner nowadays. But things that we used to not, we, we didn't used to have to say to people, do you know that the Word of God says that fornication is sin? We didn't used to have to say that. People knew that it was sin. But now they'll say, prove it to me. Where does it say that? I'm talking about church young people. I'm talking about young youth directors, church youth directors going to national conferences and conventions and the owner of the hotel coming down and saying that the rate of the movies, the, you know, the, I guess they're X-rated movies, being shown during this week went way up from what it does even when we have just a secular business convention. Something is wrong. You see, we don't really love the Lord. People don't love the Lord like he says we're to walk uprightly before him. We're to walk holy before him. Be ye holy, even as the Lord your God is holy. And God says he hates sin. What was it I told you some time ago to be a good gardener? It's not enough to love plants. You've got to hate weeds. And it's not enough to be a Christian to love God. You've got to hate sin. And what is sin? Whatever this says is sin. That's sin. It says flee fornication. Flee all forms of sexual sin. Have nothing to do with them. And then some people today say, well, that's just... You're just trying to put people under the law and bondage. Well, when you don't explain what the Word of God says and go by what the Word of God says, you open yourself to lust, adultery, fornication, all sorts of spirits that will not only control you. And this is the thing I try to get across to parents. Not just what it does to you, but what it will do through you to the children you raise up in the days ahead. Those spirits are going to be passed on to them. And whatever you did in moderation, they'll do to excess because they will have never even had the, the boundaries or the limitations that you have had in your past to build upon. I'm, a, I'm astounded today when I talk to Christian young people at the virtual lack of any concept of biblical principle. Biblical morality. As I watch God operate, as I've watched Him down through the years, I found out in most cases it's the opposite of what my natural instinct would be. What I would in the natural start to do, you can almost mark it down, God would do it in a different way. We don't operate by our own instincts, but what God's Word says, God says we'll be walking in the Spirit.
Another thing we have to be very careful of when walking in the Spirit, and you'll find it's true all the way through the Word of God, you won't be swept away by mob instincts. How many of you know that in most cases that I've ever seen in God's Word, the crowd's always wrong? God's always got one or two people that'll take a stand, and all the rest of the mob's ready to stone them to death, burn them, throw them in the furnace, whatever. God's never operated by mobs. He's always operated by one or two or a few. We can't operate by mob instinct. And there are many people today that are being influenced. Young people are being influenced today. Do you know why? Because they're listening to more rock music and listening to more television than they ever hear from their parents, information from their parents, or input from the schools, or input from the, input from the church. Whatever input you get the most, that's what's going to influence you the greatest. You have to avoid those influences that would drag us away from doing what God would have us to do. Secondly, we've got to get busy for God. Now, may I tell you something? If you want a sure cure for depression and discouragement and indifference in church, find something to do as a ministry in the church. Go and say, what can I do for the Lord? I just talked to a person recently. They said, you know, I just don't feel at home here at church. I said, uh, would you be willing to get involved? Well, I don't know. I don't, don't know that. I said, you know why you don't feel at home? I said, at home, do you sit around and let everybody else do everything? No. Who does your lawn? Your neighbor? No. Who washes your dishes? Your neighbor or your brother? No. I do. Did you feel at home at home? Yeah. I said, the reason you're not feeling at home here is because you're not doing anything. You can't come week after week after week and just get fed and not feel like you're doing anything or having a part in the ministry here. Find something to do. Ask someone, is there a job I can do around here? Now, after I talked to them, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be, but I have been told by my daughter that they've come and said, you know, I'm really interested in doing something in the church. If you don't want to get discouraged, get busy for the Lord. Wherever you're growing, wherever you're getting fed, get busy and do something for the Lord. I'll tell you, I don't know of anyone that can come month after month, year after year, and not get discouraged if they don't feel like they're a vital part and have something to do in the church. You've got to. To be a part of the family. Thirdly, cultivate an awareness of God's presence in your life. While I'm driving, if I'm walking, if I'm working around the house, many times you'll find me talking. I'm talking to the Lord. I just constantly am aware of the fact that He says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And if I'm going to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I have to talk with Him. There are a lot of husbands and wives, the reason they have real problems is because they can't talk with each other. I've given, I've given you examples in the past where a husband and wife will not talk to each other for weeks or months on end. And then finally, the pressure will build and build and build and they'll just blow their stacks and scream and yell and holler at each other and all the chaff blows away, they kiss each other and they go for another period of one or two or three months never saying a word to each other. Don't talk over anything. I've said to, to a wife from time to time, what, what does your husband think about this? I don't know. What does your husband think about that? I don't know. You don't know? You two are living together? Yeah, and you don't know? No, we don't talk. And if you don't talk with the Lord and just cultivate an awareness of His presence, you're going to become discouraged and defeated one of these days. Then expect to be led by the Holy Spirit. Expect it. Lord, I give you this day and I'm asking you to show me someone to witness to. I ask you to show me some way that I can minister to someone else. And then go forward and expect it to happen. Lord, if this is what you want me to do, then you open the door. If you don't open the door, I'm going to turn away from it and say, that's not God. I still will never forget the college professor when I was in Bible college. During the, he said during the Depression, he was standing in line for a job, and there was one job left, and he was second in line. And the guy in front of him turned around and said, ha ha, he said, you didn't get here early enough. He said, this job is mine. He said, if God wants me to have it, you could drop dead before the man asks us to come into the office. The man just looked at him. He said, you really believe that? He said, if God wanted me to have it, and that's what it took, yes, he could. He said, I don't want this job unless God wants me to have it. If he wants me to have it, if I'm the last in the long line, I'll still have the job. Now, how many of you know that that's the way we're supposed to walk with God? 
The scripture says he'll not withhold any good thing from them that walk out uprightly. If you and I are walking in a right relationship with God and constantly aware of His presence and we're expecting the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and God has a job for us, if God be for us, who can be against us? He'll make a way where there is no way. Let me tell you something. That will do more to eliminate worry in your life than anything else I can think of when you get that down in your spirit. And then once you are led by the Spirit of God, expect and set your will to follow the will of God, once he shows you what to do. But we've been talking about our hearts. In, we were talking in Hebrews 10.22, how we can draw near to God. The Bible says it's good to draw near to the Lord as believers. And let me tell you something, in this day and age, God's people need to know that God wants us to draw near to him more than anything else. He's not as interested how much we're witnessing. He's not as interested how much money we're giving to the Lord's work. He doesn't need our money, but he really wants our fellowship. He really wants our commitment to him. He wants to be in total control of our lives. Psalm 73, 28 said it's a good thing to draw near to the Lord. And it tells us how in Hebrews 10, 22, it says, well, first of all, we said with a true heart. Secondly, in full assurance of faith. In other words, with boldness through the blood of Jesus, knowing that Christ is our high priest. And then we talked about our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. We said that conscience is our inner guide. It's the inner standard, the inner judge that we've put within ourselves by our experiences, the things we've experienced, we've heard, we've learned. And I want you to know that in many cases where we think that our, we have a strong conviction or a strong conscience, it may just be a preference and not a conviction. And we found out in Proverbs 25, 28, that if you cannot control your passions, your desires, your emotions, that you're like a city whose walls are knocked down and you're defenseless. Now, when we talk about a conscience, a strong conscience, here it says sprinkled from an evil conscience, but if you and I do not have a strong conscience, we're open to the attacks of the enemy in every area of our life. Now, let me just give you a few examples. Someone may say, you know, I feel in my heart that it's wrong for a Christian to steal. But then you talk to these people and you begin to draw them out a little bit and they will, you'll find, end up finding out that their conscience has told them under certain circumstances at certain times when it's blatant theft, it's not right to steal. But if you say to them, is it wrong to take some stationary home from the places that you work. Well, that's not really stealing. I mean, the company, you know, has, they never even miss it. I mean, you know, last year that stealing from companies went into the billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. And many are Christians that are doing it. They've actually had some cases recently where they found out that some people working in large companies have backed up big vans to the door and loaded up the whole truck with stuff right out of the warehouse and driven away with it. And all the employees that were involved cover each other and then they divide the money. Now, you and I wouldn't do that. But at the same time, has the Lord ever convicted some of us to the point where we won't steal time from our employee, our employer? How many, have you ever thought about this? When you make an appointment with someone and you say, I'll be there at such and such a time, if you get there 10, 15 minutes late, you have literally stolen time from those people. But you know, some very godly people, people that really love the Lord with all their heart, never even think about the fact that when they don't get somewhere, when they say they're going to get there, and that they, what they're saying is, your time is unimportant to me. I'll steal some of your time. I see what I'm trying to show you is that we may think that we have standards, and we may think that we have convictions, but we have to make sure that they're not based upon situation ethics. Well, in this case, it's okay for me to do it. You, some people say, I've got a conviction that I should never lie. And yet, sometimes on their, on their income tax return, they may lie. On the receipts they make out, they may lie. There have been many times when I've had people come and do some work on our property, and they will just say to me, well, don't worry about it. What I'll just do is I'll just write this off and put the church's name on it. I said, no, 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 this isn't for the church, it's for me. Well, yeah, but I mean, who's going to know? Us. But there are many, many times when it, if it becomes convenient and we don't think anybody's going to find out, that's when we find out whether it's a real conviction or it's just a persuasion. 
Now, the reason I'm saying this is because I, I could get into all different subjects. Some people would say, I have a conviction that Christians ought to be modest. And then there's times when you see that they aren't being modest, when they think, well, they, I didn't mean in this case, and it really isn't important in this case. If these areas do not become deep-seated convictions based upon the Word of God, then our walls are knocked down and we're open to the attack of the enemy. He will defeat us somewhere along the line. Do you know why the world does not like genuine Christians? It's because genuine Christians have genuine convictions. No matter what the circumstances are, we'll not do wrong. I mean, we'll not bow down to this idol whether you throw us into the furnace or not. And even if you do throw us in the furnace, God may not rescue us, but if he doesn't, that doesn't make any difference. But if he does, praise God, it doesn't. They weren't talking about persuasions. They were talking about deep-seated convictions. Under no circumstance will I bow down to the situation. I want to tell you something. Nowadays, our young people and the adults are being exposed in our society every hour in some area to try to compromise or not compromise. You can turn on your television set, and if you aren't careful, you're going to be compromising very suddenly. You turn on your radio, you'll be compromising. You go to school and listen to some teachers today, and you'll be compromising, because they're going to pour stuff into your head, some of them, that will just mess you up royally. We're talking about a conscience that becomes the basis for your convictions. There was a time when I was a young Christian, I said, Lord... You said all the more as you see that day approaching, we should join together, fellowship together with God's people. And I tried to make a conviction back at that time when I was young that if ever I was anywhere and there was any possibility on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night, no matter whether I was on vacation or wherever I was, if the opportunity came up that I could be in church, I would be found in church somewhere. I mean, if I had to go to church and I didn't, it wasn't an exciting service, if the pastor gave me a verse, I could sit there and soak and soak and soak on that verse and try to get something out of that verse. Now you say, well, is that legalism? No, it became a conviction with me. The scripture said concerning Jesus that he was found in the temple as was his what? As was his custom. What were they saying? He made that a standard in his life. Whenever he would, the temple was open for services, he was there. Now, if that's not a conviction, just about anything can wipe it out. A headache can come along and you say, well, I'd rather stay home tonight, you know, and just take care of this. Or you get cold feet and you'd rather stay home and soak them. I mean, the devil will send anything along for you. I've had people say, you know, I could quit smoking if I weren't nervous, but I get nervous. And every time I get nervous, I start smoking. I say, well, don't worry about it. The devil will always see to it that you have an occasion to be nervous. You've got to come to the place where it becomes a conviction in your heart where you say, this is a sin and it's harming my body. And therefore, I refuse to have this thing rule in my life. If I have a headache, I'll lay down with that headache, but I refuse to pick up that stick and put it in my mouth. See, how many basic convictions do we have today in our lives? For it's yes or no. Now again, we talked about that our conscience is based upon our intellect, our sensibility, now that, that's the accumulation of knowledge, is sensibility is the application of that knowledge. And then there comes our will. We gather information together, compute it through our little brain, and try to make some sense out of it, and then we make a decision. Now that's why I told you it's so very, very important if we're believers to know that once we've been quickened by Jesus Christ, up until we were quickened by Jesus Christ, the only resource for information coming to us comes through the five senses. Hearing, seeing, speak, smelling, tasting, and feeling. That's the only way. The natural man perceiveth not the things of God because he's just dead. Cannot perceive the things of God. All right? Now, when a person becomes quickened by the Holy Spirit, there's a whole new resource, and that is that the Spirit of God, through the knowledge of the Word of God, the entrance of His Word giveth Light, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Okay, that comes into the person's life suddenly, and now a new input into the computer takes place. When I was unsaved, if something came up, if somebody said something and mouthed off to me, my first reaction was, I'll deck him. I had a violent temper. 
And my five senses, my fists would get tight, my teeth would begin to grit, I'd pull back and I would let anger rise up inside of me. And after I got saved, I began to read the scripture and it says, be angry and, and sin not. It says that I should love my brethren, I should forgive my brethren, even as Christ for God's sake has forgiven me. And, I all, and all of a sudden, when I would start to tighten my fist, the Spirit of God would speak to my heart and my hands and go limp. And where I used to swear, I would begin to find myself praying. What happened? I had a new input now. Now, the same, the only difference is when I have to be, had to make a decision after I became a Christian, I had to decide, now will I take what I've always had as my source of reference, or will I receive this new, because the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary to the one to the other. So, I had to decide at that time, and now let me tell you something, if that were not true, if I did not have to decide, then I could not be judged by God in that day. But I have to decide, which will I do? Will I serve God and obey Him, or will I serve the flesh and obey Him? Paul says, don't you know that you have been, that you've died? You're dead to sin now and alive unto God? What does Paul say in Colossians, the third chapter? He says, since you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Get that input from above and quit listening to what the flesh has to say to you anymore. So, now, the important thing to know is once you start getting that into your intellect and sensibility, the most common sense thing you can possibly do is to obey God. But then you have to look out for the next, next aspect of it, and this is where the enemy wins over so many young people because of their inexperience, and that's when the emotions get involved. A young person can make a decision, and it be a very logical, right decision based upon the Word of God, but if that decision isn't anchored solidly in a deep conviction that will not move, the emotions can come along and knock that will down, and they will go ahead and do that which is improper as a Christian. Why? Because it's not a deep-seated conviction. That's why it says there in Proverbs 25, 28, look at it again. He that hath no rule over his spirit or his passions and his emotions is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Remember me telling you that it's essential for every Christian to make quality decisions and a quality decision is one decision that you make that allows you not to have to make any more decisions. Let me say that again if you've never written it down. A quality decision is the decision that you will make that will allow you not to have to make another decision. You will simply act on that decision. June 13th, 1951, quality decision. This night I declare that I am making by an act of my will Jesus Christ as Lord and Master of my life. Quality decision. How do I know? One year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, next year will be 40 years later. Every decision that I have to make in my daily walk is based upon that decision I made back there that was a quality decision. Should I cheat? Should I lie? Should I steal? Should I get into immorality? Absolutely not. I cannot because I made a decision that Jesus is Lord and his word says no and that settles it. Well, now the emotions begin to come. And let me tell you, that's why a lot of ministers are falling today in immorality. You can't tell me that any man of God that is, any man that's been in the ministry for many, many years and has read and studied and preached the Word of God doesn't know in his intellect and sensibility what he's supposed to do or not supposed to do morally. You can't tell me that he hasn't established a line over which he says, I'll not go again, but the foolish part of it is he has failed to control his emotions and his passions. Let me tell you something. The Word of God says that we're to flee all forms of sexual immorality. It doesn't say sit there and soak. It doesn't say stand on the roof and look at it and drool over it. It doesn't say sit in front of that television set and let it, the imagination go in your mind. It doesn't say pick up pornographic magazines and think you're going to get away with it. It says flee from it. Now what's going to make the difference between those that will and those that won't? It's those that have established quality decisions in their life that even when this is involved, they will not allow their emotions to rule their decisions and their actions in the days of it. I just want to bring this down to where it fits every one of us. There are going to be times when you're going to want to get mad in the worst way. Your emotions are going to try to, to get, get you mad, and you're going to have to know that the Word of God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. There's going to be times when the enemy is going to come in and tell you, you've got every right to be discouraged. 
You've got every right to begin to doubt God. And you're going to have to go back and say, I know that the word of God says he never makes a mistake. His way is absolutely perfect. He's promised never to leave me and never forsake me. I don't care what the circumstances look like and I don't care what I'm feeling inside. I choose by quality decision to do what the Word of God says and believe what the Word of God says regardless of the circumstances. I want to tell you something. If you can lock this into your spirit, you'll begin to see victory in your lives like you've never known before in every area of life. When you come up against a certain area of your life that you've had difficulty, whatever it might be, and you know last week I, I talked about whether it's bitterness or unforgiveness or strife or withdrawal or depression or unfairness or impatience or, or, or uh, worry or fears, whatever they are. You have to come to a place where you, through your intellect and sensibility, know that God has that need already met for you in your life. And not allow your emotions to rule over you and say, I will not let this thing rule over me in the name of Jesus. It will not change me from what the Word of God says I am to be. Now, when that becomes established, that sets a solid foundation for your conscience. You and I set the standard for our conscience by our decision of what we're going to do with the knowledge that's coming into our life. I will not get involved in immorality, but I might, when nobody else sees me, I might read some pornographic magazines or just look at girly pictures. I will not lie or cheat, but if that girl at the clerk, at the clerk at the cash register happens to give me $3.50 or even 22 cents or even 3 cents, too much change back, that's her problem. We're setting this standard. And we have to come to the place to say, I am going to live in such a way that I bring no disgrace upon my Lord and my God. Now, no one can do that for you or me. We have to make that quality decision in our closet. And when we come out, then exercise it. You see, that's why I kept telling you that I, when my children were growing up, I used to tell them, go in your room and make a quality decision before you go out on your date as to how far you're going to go tonight. So when you get out on the date, you won't have to make a decision. You'll just act on the decision you already had because I knew this was going to be there. Now you have to make a quality decision. What kind of music am I going to let my children listen to? What kind of programming am I going to let my children watch? What kind of friends am I going to allow my children to frequent with? If you're a parent. And they'll come and say, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. You just don't love me. You just have to say, that's tough. I have to answer to God for what I do. And I'm not going to have the Lord chasing me because of my disobedience in not chastening and correcting you and setting a standard in my family as long as you're under my roof, as long as you're in my house. I have to answer to God and you will do what I tell you you will do in this house. You know, we never allowed our children to go down the street and play in someone else's house unless we knew that mother very, very well and she knew what our standards were, what we required. We would have the kids come and play in our yard all the time so we could watch them and know exactly what was going on out there. You say, well, isn't that restrictive? Yep. And I mean, it deformed and distorted our children where they were just weirdos. But we knew we had to answer to God. It became a conviction with Scriptures are full of types of conscience. The first one is an awakened conscience. Look at John, the 8th chapter, verses 1 through 9. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. How many of you know it takes two before there can be an act of adultery? Isn't it interesting? They only brought the woman. I wonder where the dude was. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Someone said, Rock came up in the back of the audience, and this is for Catholic joke. Rock came up, and he ducked and he said, Oh, Mom, he that is without sin among you, they teach Mariolatry or sinlessness of Mary, he that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now listen, and they which heard it being convicted by 
their own conscience, the Spirit of God did a work on their heart, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now let me ask you something. How many of you believe that these men knew that they had sinned before, before Jesus ever wrote on the ground or even said that? How many of you know that they were still ready to stone that woman? And when Jesus said what he said, the Spirit of God worked on their conscience. He's right. That's sin, and I've sinned, and what right have I to judge this woman? And they began to leave one after another. And Jesus said, woman, where are thy accusers? And she said, they're all gone. And he said, neither do I accuse thee. And that's where so many teachers today stop. But that isn't what Jesus said. He says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and what? Quit it! I wish people would hear that. Yes, you sinned. Yes, I forgive you. Now quit it! He's not saying, yes, you've sinned. Yes, I forgive you. Yes, go back and do it some more. He didn't say that. But their consciences were awakened. And I want to tell you something. That's what happens during revival meetings. When you have revival meetings, the Spirit of God will begin to awaken people who up to that time were just as sinful, had just as much missed God's purpose and plan, but the Holy Spirit began to convict them. I, I've told you before, but I can remember in Bible college when the Holy Spirit would come down on us and people would begin to weep and fall off of their seats on the floor and cry before God and would stand up and make terrible confessions publicly. I've sinned against God. I've done this and this and this and this. And they would go out of the chapel and go to a phone and call people back home and ask for forgiveness. They'd go back to their job and say, will you please forgive me? I stole this or I stole that or I stole the other thing. They had done it before, but it wasn't until the Holy Ghost began to really convict them of these things and their consciences were awakened. You know, we need to say, Lord, awaken my conscience. Make me sensitive again. I want to tell you something. I've seen in the years of my ministry people who at one time were very, very sensitive to the Spirit of God's working and sensitive against sin, and I've seen them allow their consciences to go to sleep. They would do things now later on that they would never have done a few years before. What happened? Their conscience went to sleep. I want to tell you something. Unless the Spirit of God will quicken our conscience, awaken our conscience, we can walk in disobedience and walk in sin and think we're, we're perfectly all right with God. Awakened conscience. The second one is a seared conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Let me ask you something. Do you have to be in the faith before you depart from it? I heard a preacher today on the radio talking about the fact that our relationship to God has nothing to do with our conduct. Nothing to do with our conduct whatsoever. And I thought to myself, I wonder then why the Word of God says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, God won't hear our prayer. It has nothing to do with our conduct. If the Word of God says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways and for him not to think he's going to receive anything from the Lord, I wonder how it has nothing to do with our conduct. I'm not talking about getting saved by, by works, but I'm talking about the fact that our relationship to Jesus Christ, has mu our conduct has much to do with that. What does God say? He said it's your sin that separates us. I can't get over that sin to you because of the sin that's there. When the Spirit of God begins to deal with us, it says here now in the latter, and then now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter time, I, we're talking about today, I really believe that, don't you? We're in the latter time. Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. How many of you know that the church is involved in this as well as the world? Just read this past week that a Methodist minister, she was ordained in the Methodist church, and she was just moved from one parish to another parish because of the upheaval that she made because she was having marriage ceremonies for homosexuals and lesbians. And she tries to justify it through Scripture. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience what? Seared with a hot iron. I want to tell you something. If you will reject light, Satan will have another doctrine for you to pick up in place of it. Because when you reject light, there's darkness, and great is that darkness, the Word of God says. And if you will not receive light, you open yourself up to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. 
And I want to tell you something, that's why there's so many cults starting up today, that's why the occult is becoming so strong today, and you'll find in many occult groups that there are former church members, former people who made professions to know Jesus Christ. What happened? They came to a certain place where they said, I won't accept any more light, and they turned from it, and they were open to doctrines of demons. Look over there in verse 16, after he says that that's what's going to take place in the last days, he says, you take heed unto yourself, and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. He says, don't let your conscience be seared. Don't turn away from the truth. I've talked to people that at one time were very, very sincere, hard-working Christian people that today are filled with demonic doctrines, full of hatred, full of resentment, full of bitterness, full of all these things. Let me tell you something, they had to make a choice when these problems of life come. Have any of you, are there any here that have never been hurt by someone else? Any of you here that have never been disappointed in a preacher? Any of you here that have never had someone steal something from you or cheat you out of something? You made a quality decision. I'm not going to look at men, I'm going to look at God. And so these people look at man and look at man and say, oh, God is allowing all these things. And if that's the kind of God he is, I'm going to trust him. They make a quality decision. And they're, they have to sear their conscience. I know a man right now who was raised in a godly home, sat under the gospel from the time he was a baby, right, and, and was in services, performing in services, singing and playing instruments and giving testimonies and traveling around for Bible college and everything else, that today is away from church, away from his family, living with another woman that's been married at least two or three times, devouring alcoholic beverages and smoking like a smokestack now. And, and, and if you talk to him, he's closer to God today than he's ever been. How many of you know he's deceived? He's praying today more than he's ever prayed before. And he's reading the Bible as much as he ever has. That's a seared conscience. That man's in deception, total deception. What did the Word of God say? He that says he loves me and keeps not my commandments is a liar, and the truth is many. He's living in a lie. He's deceived, walking in, in deceit. Third, Hebrews the ninth chapter, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now you see, in your conscience is where guilt becomes embedded. In your spirit, I should say. Guilt is embedded in your spirit and only the blood of Jesus Christ can wash that away and purge our conscience. I'm telling you, if I didn't know that, that the Word of God said the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. I could not even walk before God today because the devil would keep throwing back in my face all the things I did before I was a Christian. All the times that I've failed God since I've been a Christian. But thank God for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, if we come into agreement with God, and God, I agree with you that that's sin, I agree with you, I don't want it in my life, I claim the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, and I'm asking you to deliver me from that completely. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will cleanse that completely. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Spirit of God will come and cleanse our conscience. It's through the blood that we can go in. And it's the blood that cleanses us and makes us even acceptable to God. If any of us think that we, through our own efforts, can ever be acceptable in the presence of God, I've got news for you. There's not a one of us that will ever be accepted outside of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're talking about here a purged conscience. If you've ever tried to walk remembering the things that you did, the failures you did before you were a Christian, without applying the blood, you of all people probably be one of the most miserable creatures on the face of the earth. But be able to look back and say, thank you, Father, that through the blood of Jesus and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, my sins have been cast into the depths of the deepest sea. They've been taken from me as far as the east is from the west, never to, never to, never, never, never to be remembered against me again. Bless God. God can't even bring them up in the judgment day because they're under the blood. He can't find them. 
And that's, that's why we get set free. That's why we can have release as Christians. That's why a person can stand up and say, I was the least of all saints. I was the most wicked sinner on the face of the earth. But bless God right now, I'm a child of the king. I've been redeemed by the blood. I have... I'm a peculiar people, a royal generation, and people look at it and shake their heads and say, I don't understand that. No, they can't understand it. They don't understand the working of the blood of Jesus Christ. And once your conscience is purged, then you're free to minister to everyone else and say, look, I'm not a holy Joe. I'm just one that's been redeemed by the blood, and I'm here as Christ's ambassador to tell you that's what he did for you too. And you can have the forgiveness of sin. But if you go around with the devil beating you down in the ground, telling you how rotten and how no good you are and how you know, worthless and useless and God can't use you and you believe that garbage, the devil's got you right where he wants you. But your conscience is purged by the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of bull and goats, remember? Let me tell you, all that did back in the Old Testament was what? It's covered the sins. But the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses, takes away, washes away our sin today. It's gone once and for all. And so we can have our consciences purged through repentance and faith in the provision that Jesus Christ made for us. An awakened conscience, a seared conscience, and a purged conscience. Now why do I say all these things? To make you miserable? No, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The enemy has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he's going to give you every occasion under the sun to get you mad at someone at church, think that something isn't being done just exactly right, you get a, a wedge in there to begin to cause bitterness and resentment and hurt to come into you, and you've got to make quality decision. I will not receive that in the name of Jesus. I'll pray for those that are having difficulty, but I refuse to resent them. Now, again, that'll only happen when it becomes a conviction with it, that I'm going to do those things that God tells me I'm supposed to do in His Word, and I'm going to be pleasing to Him so others can see Jesus Christ in my life. I can't make you make that decision. Your wife, your mother, your father, your husband, no one can make As for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. And until you know what he says here, you're going around with a gun with no shells in it. 